You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's April 1866 on Capitol Hill in Washington. The House is locked in an intense debate over a bill to establish the post-Civil War military. After hours of jabs and spars, one 36-year-old Republican congressman from Utica, New York, takes the floor. Standing over six feet tall, Roscoe Conkling rises to his feet, his booming voice filling the chamber. I move to strike out Section 20 of the bill. Section 20 provides for the salary of the provost marshal, the head of recruitment for the army. The war is over. Conkling feels it's an unnecessary position. It's also held by a man he despises, General James Fry. This section creates an unnecessary office for an undeserving public servant. It fastens an incubus upon the country. General Fry presides over a den of thieves who victimize the public through blatant deception. But many in the chamber disagree with Conkling's assessment, including a young Republican from Maine named James G. Blaine. Blaine has no love for Conkling. The two have repeatedly sparred on the House floor over a myriad of issues. At a recent dinner party, they even exchanged some less than polite words. General Fry is a man Blaine supports, one he considers honorable. So this attack from Conkling leaves the congressman from Maine fuming. What happened to the millions of dollars that mysteriously went missing during the war? To answer that question, one need look no further than the office of General Fry. Conkling is a rising star, well on his way to becoming the de facto boss of New York politics. He's not the sort of man to be crossed lightly, but on this day in April of 1866, for James Blaine, enough is enough. As Conkling returns to his seat in the gallery, Blaine takes the floor. When I hear the gentleman from New York rehearse in this house his argument against General Fry, my personal indignation carries me beyond my personal strength. Blaine can barely contain his rage as he attacks Conkling's motion. The gentleman from New York and General Fry have had many disputes over the years. In these quarrels, it is generally understood that the gentleman frequently came out second best. Theirs is a personal issue that does not belong on the floor of the house where General Fry has no recourse to defend himself. Unwilling to back down, Conkling seeks recognition and takes back the floor. Mr. Speaker, I mean to take no advantage of the absence of General Fry. On the contrary, I am ready to avow what I have said anywhere. I am responsible not only here, but elsewhere for what I have said. The chamber falls silent. Conkling is venturing into dangerous territory. He is suggesting that if Blaine doesn't back down, he will challenge him to a duel. The false report given by the gentleman from Maine should have no bearing on my motion. But Blaine is still furious. He calls out from the chamber, What does the gentleman mean to say was false? I mean to say that the statement made by the gentleman from Maine is false. Blaine turns to the Speaker of the House and demands, Mr. Speaker, I call the gentleman to order. The chair overrules the point of order. I have the parliamentary right. Overrule, Mr. Blaine. I demand he shall state what was false and what I said. The gentleman from Maine will suspend. But the gentleman from Maine does not suspend. 
and ultimately Conkling relents and allows Blaine to retake the floor. Blaine regains his composure and addresses his fellow congressman. When we had the gentlemen here from the 11 seceded states, they used to talk about answering here and elsewhere. And it was understood that they meant a duel. I take it the gentleman from New York means the same. Well, now that is very cheap. When I have to resort to the epithet of false upon this floor and this cheap swagger, I shall have very little faith in the cause I stand up to maintain. Ultimately, Congress decided that Section 20 was to be struck from the bill. But this wasn't, at base, a debate over a bill. A week later, Blaine stood on the floor of the House and read a letter from General Fry, accusing Roscoe Conkling of thievery and corruption. Blaine also ridiculed a recent newspaper article that lionized Conkling, comparing him to a revered radical Republican leader. Blaine mocked the comparison, saying, It is striking Hyperion to a satyr, mud to marble, dunghill to diamond, a singed cat to a Bengal tiger, a whining puppy to a roaring lion. The rivalry between Blaine and Conkling was simmering on violence. They would find themselves on opposite sides of an enduring political struggle inside the Republican Party that at the Republican convention in the election of 1880 would find its climax. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. By the late 1870s, the Republican Party was fractured. The radical Republicans, the men largely responsible for the eradication of slavery and the establishment of civil rights, were fading from prominence. Famous radicals like Thaddeus Stevens were dying or disappearing into the obscurity of retirement. Men like James Blaine and Roscoe Conkling were the future of the Republican Party. And these two men would become the leaders of two distinct Republican factions, the Stalwarts and the Halfbreeds. Roscoe Conkling and the Stalwarts were largely in favor of the political machinery that propped up federal patronage, a process by which elected candidates would reward their supporters with political posts and perks. The half-breeds were largely in favor of civil service reform, an attempt to eliminate federal patronage and replace it with a merit-based system, wherein the most qualified person would get the job regardless of politics. The term half-breed was an insult invented by the Stalwarts. In the wake of the Civil War, Democrats in the South had consistently opposed President Grant's administration and the federal patronage system. Thus, men like James Blaine, who agreed with half the Democrats' policies, were themselves half-Republican. Eventually, the half-breeds embraced the insult and wore it like a badge of honor. As the two factions of the Republican Party vied for dominance in the 1870s, Conklin and Blaine would rise to positions of power. Blaine would become the Speaker of the House and eventually a senator. Though his record on civil service reform was spotty, he would ultimately garner the confidence of many in the half-breed faction. Roscoe Conkling would become the de facto boss of the stalwarts and would control the levers of power in New York Republican politics. These two immovable forces would collide in June of 1880 in Chicago at the Republican National Convention. 
There, Conkling and Blaine would fight a political battle that would result in gridlock and give rise to a dark horse candidate whom neither man saw coming. In the midst of the chaos of the 1880 convention, former Major General James A. Garfield would rise to power. In the general election, he would strive to unite the two warring factions of the Republican Party and get the best of a formidable war hero Democrat. This is episode 24, 1880, Garfield versus Hancock, Maelstrom. During President Grant's two terms, Roscoe Conkling and the stalwarts had remained loyal even in the face of a never-ending list of scandals that plagued Grant's administration. The stalwarts had largely backed Grant's efforts to make good on the promises of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which collectively were meant to eradicate slavery and guarantee all rights of citizenship to former slaves. But the many scandals of Grant's administration had branded the Republican Party with corruption and alienated many in his own party, men like James Blaine and the other half-breeds. Additionally, during Grant's presidency, federal patronage was alive and well. So in 1876, the half-breeds helped to elect Rutherford B. Hayes, a pro-reform candidate. But the election of 1876 had only served to further damage the reputation of the Republican Party. Hayes' victory was the closest yet in American history. Vote recounts were required in several states, including Florida, but those recounts were controlled by Republican-run state governments. When Hayes was declared the winner, Democrats accused Republicans of stealing the election. They called the 1876 contest the Great Fraud of 1876, and they gave Rutherford B. Hayes the nickname His Fraudulency. Then as president, Hayes angered the stalwarts and the remnants of the radical Republican faction, too. He presided over the end of Reconstruction and withdrew federal troops from the South, even in the face of mounting evidence that Southern states were depriving Black Americans of their constitutional rights. Additionally, Hayes made concerted efforts to fulfill his promise of civil service reform. Needless to say, Roscoe Conkling and the stalwarts did not support a second term for Rutherford B. Hayes. Even if James Blaine and the half-breeds did, it wouldn't have mattered. Hayes had made a promise to be a one-term president. His decision not to compete in 1880, therefore, set the table for a political showdown between Conkling and Blaine. By 1880, politics in America had transformed into something of a spectator sport, a form of mass entertainment. Politicians were national celebrities, party conventions were major events, and voting had become a sacred right. The enthusiasm was on full display at the Republican convention in Chicago, Illinois. By some estimates, as many as 50,000 people came to Chicago for the convention. One of them was recent senator-elect James A. Garfield. On May 28th, just a few days before the convention, Garfield arrived in Chicago and checked in at the Grand Pacific Hotel. He wasn't there long when he was cornered by a reporter from the Chicago Tribune. Garfield told the reporter, I have just arrived. Please don't ask me anything about political matters. I've really not had time to make an estimate or form an opinion of the situation. But of course, Garfield did have an opinion. There were two clear frontrunners going into the convention. Conkling and the stalwarts threw their support behind General Ulysses S. Grant, hoping to resurrect his political career and make Grant the first president in American history to serve three terms. The half-breeds looked to their leader, a popular senator and former congressman, James Blaine. But Senator Garfield came to Chicago in support of a third candidate, former Congressman John Sherman, Treasury Secretary under President Hayes. 
But in the hotel lobby, the reporter didn't take no for an answer, asking Garfield a follow-up question. How do you stand on the unit rule? Garfield quickly answered the reporter, Now as to that, I will give you an answer, because I have an opinion on that subject. The unit rule was a rule under which a delegation to a national political convention cast its entire vote as a unit, as determined by a majority vote. Based on Garfield's best prediction of the delegate count, he had to know that the unit rule, if adopted, would hurt both Secretary Sherman and Senator Blaine. He also had to know it would help Roscoe Conkling and the stalwarts put General Grant back in the White House. There was no doubt Conkling would scheme to push the unit rule and sew up the nomination for Grant. Really, it was a matter of simple math. 379 votes were required to win. According to one recent prediction in the Albany Register, James Blaine likely had 277 votes. Grant had 314. Sherman, only 106. The rest were scattered among a few minor contenders. Going into the convention, Grant was clearly in the lead, but there was opposition. A minority of very vocal dissenters spread across several key states, men who would never support Grant. The bulk of the anti-Grant dissenters were in Conkling's home turf of New York, So if Roscoe Conklin could push through the unit rule and silence their minority individual dissent, giving them New York's delegates in a block, Grant was extremely likely to win, perhaps even on the first ballot. On the other hand, if the unit rule was blocked, Garfield's candidate Secretary Sherman had a fighting chance. Sherman was in third place, but Blaine and Grant were neck and neck. Garfield was a student of convention politics. He knew that with two powerful factions locked in a stalemate, there was often a chance that the third-place candidate, his candidate, could easily become the compromise choice. In giving his opinion on the unit rule, Garfield didn't pull punches with the reporter. Each delegate has a right to express his own political sentiment by his own personal vote. It is wholly unrepublican for one man to cast another man's vote. Garfield had been forthcoming with the reporter about his opinion on the unit rule, but there was one subject he didn't get into, his own candidacy. Garfield came to Chicago in support of Secretary Sherman, a fellow Ohioan, but rumors of Garfield, the dark horse candidate, had been swirling for weeks. In late April of 1880, Garfield had received a visitor, a man who told him that members of the Pennsylvania delegation had aims to make him the nominee. But Garfield had declined their support. Sherman was his man. Back at the convention, on the afternoon of May 28th, Garfield and a group of key Sherman supporters met on the fifth floor of the Grand Pacific Hotel. Garfield told Sherman's men that the unit rule was the great question of the convention. In his account of the meeting, Garfield wrote that he urged them to take a bold and aggressive stand against the rule, to unite with the friends of all candidates who take this view. Roscoe Conkling was not one of these men. At the New York State Convention earlier that year, Conkling had narrowly pushed through a resolution instructing all New York delegates to support a third term for Grant. In Chicago, Conkling planned to force the unit rule on the convention by leaning on his good friend Donald Cameron, the convention chairman. Conkling had instructed Cameron to impose the unit rule by any means necessary, but this aggression only contributed to a growing anti-Grant, anti-Conkling sentiment in the party. And on this afternoon of May 28th, Garfield hatched a plan. The unit rule likely helped Grant. It likely hurt everyone else. So if the supporters of Sherman and Blaine united, they could stop Conkling by making a motion to remove Cameron even before the convention got underway.
While Garfield set his plan in motion in Chicago, the three leading candidates for the Republican nomination stayed out of the fray, communicating with their surrogates via telegraph. General Grant received frequent updates at his home in Galena, Illinois. Sherman and Blaine stayed in Washington. All three men left their fate in the hands of their supporters. Sherman put his faith in Senator-elect James Garfield, Blaine in William Chandler, a savvy Harvard lawyer and political operative from New Hampshire, and General Grant trusted in Roscoe Conkling. The convention officially began on Monday, May 31, 1880. At 7 p.m., as Chairman Donald Cameron gaveled the convention to order, Conkling had some cause for concern. Already, his plan was coming apart. Earlier that day, nine delegates from New York had signed a pledge to not support General Grant. And then, almost immediately after the convention began, a delegate from Colorado took the floor and made a motion to strike the unit rule. When Cameron ruled the motion out of order, the convention hall filled with boos and hisses. Several attempts were made to jettison the unit rule, and each time Cameron dismissed it outright on dubious procedural grounds. The next day, newspapers all across the country derided Cameron's undemocratic behavior. Protesters took to the streets, holding up signs that read, Down with the Grant Syndicate. Conkling could feel the opposition mounting against him, so he decided it was time to strike a deal. It's early June 1880 at the Palmer Hotel in Chicago. A large group of half-breed Republicans walk into the crowded lobby on their way to a private meeting of the National Convention Committee. At the head of the pack is James Blaine's biggest supporter, William Chandler. The half-breeds are geared up for a fight. Chandler has in his possession a piece of paper, a motion to unseat Chairman Donald Cameron and replace him with Massachusetts Senator George Hoare. This time, Chandler believes he has the support he needs to force Cameron out. As Chandler and the half-breeds make their way down the hall to their suite, their path is blocked by Roscoe Conkling's right-hand man, the former collector of the New York port, Chester A. Arthur. Arthur, a skilled lawyer and negotiator, has been sent to the Palmer house by Roscoe Conkling with specific instructions. Strike a deal. Arthur steps forward and turns on the charm. Mr. Chandler, may I have a word in private? Stone-faced Chandler responds, Not in private, but you may have a word. As the crowd of half-breeds looks on, Arthur speaks to Chandler in a hushed tone. Mr. Chandler, if you succeed in removing Donald Cameron by force, you run the risk of splitting this convention. I will only serve to weaken our nominee in the general election and hand the contest to Hancock. He's referring to General Winfield Scott Hancock, the presumptive Democratic nominee. The Democratic Convention is set to take place in late June, but barring any significant impediments, all signs point to a Hancock victory. Arthur continues, I think we can both agree that defeating General Hancock must be the priority. You will hear no argument from me there, Mr. Arthur. Good. So in that spirit, I would like to propose a compromise. Mr. Arthur, as you know, Mr. Conkling and his minions have refused to seat the Illinois delegation. Until that insult is remedied, there's nothing to discuss. Mr. Chandler, Illinois will be seated. You have my word. Chandler is pleasantly surprised, but not yet satisfied. But Mr. Arthur, that is not our only grievance. Mr. Conkling is attempting to manipulate these proceedings and prevent a fair and democratic process. On this point, we will never compromise. Yes, democracy. 
Mr. Conkling finds it very important and proposes that the delegates decide the question of the unit rule in an open, fair, and free vote. Chandler is very relieved. A split convention is the last thing he and the half-breeds want. But he doesn't show Arthur any emotion, because Chandler is smart enough to realize that Roscoe Conkling does not give up anything without getting something in return. I'm amenable to that proposal. But what does New York want in exchange? Only the Cameron stays chair. Chandler sighs in frustration. Arthur continues his pitch. But only for the moment. We suggest Cameron remain on the committee and your man, Senator Hoare, be named temporary chair till the issue of the unit rule is decided. Chandler is suspicious. Conkling is giving up a lot. And Chandler can't help but wonder if Conkling's compromise is a Trojan horse. Still, the alternative, a split convention, would be disastrous. I will need to discuss this with my colleagues first. Arthur extends his hand. For the party? Chandler takes it. For the party. Not long after the meeting between Arthur and Chandler, the delegates of the convention voted to reject the unit rule, 449 to 306. It's impossible to know exactly why Conkling pushed for a compromise or why he gave up what many perceived as being a massive advantage. Perhaps he questioned Cameron's loyalty. Days earlier, Cameron had sent a message to Secretary Sherman indicating that if he would instruct his people to back the unit rule, Cameron believed the stalwarts would eventually abandon Grant and defect to Sherman's side. Perhaps Conkling felt betrayed by this, or perhaps he feared Cameron was right in his assessment. The unit rule could help Conkling, but in the event of a stalemate with Blaine, it could hurt him too. Still, the most likely explanation is that Conkling was worried about the political ramifications of a split convention, and he was not alone. Ultimately, after Arthur's compromise, supporters of all three candidates got on board, including James Garfield. But rumors of Garfield's dark horse candidacy only increased after the compromise was struck. With the unit rule off the table, it was anyone's convention. Grant and Blaine were locked in a tight contest with Sherman in a distant third, all three well shy of the required number of votes. A gridlock between Blaine and Grant could certainly result in a Sherman victory, but it also left the door open for any candidate, a candidate like Garfield, to rise to the top. While at the convention, Garfield wrote to his wife, You can hardly imagine the embarrassment I have been in from the moment of my arrival here by the number of delegates from all quarters who are openly expressing the wish that I was the Ohio candidate. But if Garfield was embarrassed by the support for his nomination, at the convention, his behavior seemed to indicate otherwise. As Roscoe Conklin continued to scheme on Grant's behalf, Garfield would take a principled stance that would fan the rumor mill of his dark horse candidacy and position him as the man to beat at the Chicago convention. It's Friday, June 4th, 1880, at the Industrial Exposition Building on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. The visitor's gallery of the exposition hall is filled with spectators. Hundreds of journalists sit at tables located directly beneath the stage. Standing at the podium, in front of a massive sea of delegates, is the king of New York politics, Roscoe Conkling, bellowing to the crowd. I would like to offer a resolution that requires every delegate at this convention to support the party's nominee. No man should hold his seat here who is not ready to agree. 
Mr. Chairman, I move that a voice vote be called. So ruled. All in favor? All opposed? The ayes have it. The motion is adopted. Conkling's motion passed 716 to 3. But those three delegates from West Virginia have openly defied him. And Conkling does not tolerate even the smallest defiance. Mr. Chairman, I hold that these three dissenters from West Virginia are not true Republicans. Therefore, they are not entitled to vote on or debate any measures brought forth in these proceedings. I move that these gentlemen be expelled at once. One of the West Virginians, an abolitionist named A.W. Campbell, rises to defend himself. I shall never go into any convention and agree beforehand that whatever may be done shall have my endorsement. Campbell stares down Conkling, shouting, Sir, as a free man whom God made free, I always intend to carry my sovereignty under my own hat. If it has come to this, that in the city of Chicago, a delegate cannot have free expression of opinion, I, for one, am willing to withdraw from this convention. In the midst of the boos and hisses, a lone member from the Ohio delegation stands and makes his way to the stage. Reporters start to perk up as Senator James A. Garfield takes the podium and addresses the hall. I fear this convention is about to make a great error, and before they act, I beg leave to state the case. Garfield points to the three dissenters in the West Virginia delegation. These gentlemen have a right to their own opinion. Are they to be disenfranchised because they thought it was not the time to make such a pledge of blind loyalty? There was never a convention. There never can be a convention of which I am a delegate, equal in rights to every other delegate, that shall bind my vote against my will on any question whatsoever. Garfield knows that the hundreds of reporters at his feet are hanging on his every word. He also knows that in a matter of minutes, his speech will be telegraphed out and printed in every major newspaper in the country. I know one of these men, gentlemen. I knew him in the dark days of slavery and for 20 long years. In the midst of slave pens and slave drivers, he stood up for liberty with a clear-sighted courage and a brave heart. If this convention expels him, we expel with him any claim we have to the notion of honor. Garfield's speech hushes the delegation, perhaps even shames them. Roscoe Conkling was forced to withdraw his motion to expel the West Virginia delegates. He was defeated, but Conkling was also impressed. During Garfield's speech, he had scribbled a note onto a piece of paper and slipped it to Garfield on his way back to his seat. The note read, New York requests that Ohio's real candidate and dark horse come forward. We want him in our sights while we prepare our ballots. The day after his defense of the three West Virginians, on Saturday, June 5th, James Garfield was scheduled to make another speech at the convention. Again, he spoke right on the heels of Roscoe Conkling, who had done a masterful job moving the crowd to cheers and applause with his well-rehearsed, flowery rhetoric. In a booming voice, Conkling said of his candidate of choice, when asked what state he hails from, our sole reply shall be, he hails from Appomattox. Conkling also addressed a serious concern the viability of a third-term president. Conkling said, Having tried Grant twice and found him faithful, we are told that we must not even, after an interval of years, trust him again. My countrymen, what stultification does such a policy involve? At the end of his speech, the crowd erupted into cheers. It was a tough act to follow, and Garfield was not nearly as prepared. 
in a letter to his wife, Garfield had written, I have not made the first step in preparation. It was a frightful mistake. He spoke from the heart and from a place of spontaneity. He would later explain, Conkling's extraordinary speech gave me the idea of carrying the mind of the convention in a different direction. At the outset of his speech, Garfield said, I have witnessed the extraordinary scenes of this convention with deep solicitude. No emotion touches my heart more quickly than sentiments in honor of a great and noble character. But I have thought as I sat on these seats that you were the human ocean gathered in this circle. I have seen the sea lashed into fury and tossed into spray, and its grandeur moves the soul of the dullest man. But I remember that it is not the billows, but the calm level of the sea from which all heights and depths are measured. In great contrast to Conkling's speech before, the convention hall was quiet as Garfield continued. He reminded the audience that the election would be decided by four million Republican firesides, voters with wives and children about them, with the calm thoughts of home, not in Chicago, but at the ballot boxes in the Republic, in the quiet, melancholy days of November. Garfield asked the crowd, What shall we do? A lone voice from the crowd offered a reply, Nominate Garfield. In his eloquent speech, Garfield didn't mention Secretary Sherman until the very end, which led many in the audience to suspect Garfield was starting to change his tune. As one Illinois delegate told a reporter, I shall always believe that Garfield, while describing Sherman, was thinking of himself. Regardless of Garfield's true intention, his speech on June 5th put him squarely in the conversation. His words were carried by telegraph to newspapers all across the country and into the homes of the public. Garfield's speech won him points with the people, but it caused a rift inside the Sherman camp. The morning after his speech, Sherman received a telegram from a supporter that read, He has been of no service to you. He was extremely lukewarm in your support. He is a Garfield man. And in truth, Garfield was entertaining the idea of running. His private correspondence reveals a conflicted man who could see both sides of the question, the good and the bad. As he wrote to his wife, his biggest concern was Roscoe Conkling. Even if Garfield won the nomination, he told her, it will be to likely embitter him and his followers against me. Publicly, Garfield did not commit, but many delegates were warming up to the idea of a Garfield nomination, especially in the face of a likely gridlock between Blaine and Grant. Garfield was repeatedly approached by delegates looking to test the waters, and repeatedly he dismissed the idea of his own candidacy and stood fast by Secretary Sherman. But despite his public posture, Garfield's speech had started something he could no longer control. On June 7th, the first ballot was in line with previous predictions in the press. Grant 304, Blaine 284, Sherman 93. On the first day, Garfield picked up a single vote from a Pennsylvania delegate. The rest of the votes were spread across several minor candidates. By the end of that first day of voting, after over 20 ballots, little had changed. Grant and Blaine were still neck and neck and still well short of the required number. After a long day of voting, a reporter asked one delegate a pointed question. Do you think it's possible for the Blaine men to support Sherman? The delegate responded bluntly, no, sir. When the reporter asked him about Garfield, then the delegate demurred, saying only in parting, good evening. The next day, on the 34th ballot, Garfield's name started to ring out. Sixteen delegates from Wisconsin voted for Garfield. From there, the dominoes fell. One by one, delegates from all across the country threw their support behind Garfield. 
On the 36th ballot, the contest was over. Garfield secured 395 votes and the Republican nomination. After that final vote, Garfield told a reporter for a Chicago newspaper, I wish you would say that this is no act of mine. I have done everything and omitted nothing to secure Secretary Sherman's nomination. One Sherman supporter sent the secretary the bad news via telegraph. The movement to Garfield swept with lightning rapidity through the convention. He is nominated. The hall erupted in cheers. The chairman banged his gavel and pronounced James A. Garfield of Ohio is nominated for the President of the United States. Conkling's men, though, had remained firm. They stood by Grant until the final ballot. In the end, it was James Blaine's half-breeds that defected to Garfield's camp. A few minutes after the announcement, Roscoe Conkling took the floor and said, I congratulate the Republican Party of the United States upon the good nature and well-tempered rivalry which has distinguished this animated contest. Though his outward words and actions were magnanimous, his tone was solemn and gloomy. Conkling was deep down furious. Whether by accident or design, James Garfield had successfully secured his party's nomination. But to win in the general election, Garfield knew he would have to unite the Republican Party behind his candidacy. To accomplish that goal, Garfield would have to curry favor from the very man he just defeated, Roscoe Conkling. As was his custom, Conkling would ask for something in return. It's June 1880 in Chicago at the Republican Convention. Roscoe Conkling hides in a private room at the back of the exposition building, licking his wounds. He paces back and forth, angrily muttering to himself. The room is empty, save for Conkling and one other man, a lone reporter who lurks in the background, unnoticed. The reporter watches Conkling's every move and jots down notes as Chester A. Arthur enters through the door. Arthur, too, doesn't notice the reporter. But when he sees Conkling frantically pacing and muttering, he calls out, I've been hunting for you everywhere. Seeing his protege and good friend, Conkling immediately breathes a sigh of relief. Ah, oh, Chester, sit down with me, please. You say you've been looking for me. What can I do for you? The reporter quietly eavesdrops as Conkling and Arthur's conversation ventures into some dicey territory. The Ohio men have offered me the vice presidency. Conkling sighs in frustration. He can hardly contain his rage. Well, sir, you should drop it, as you would a red-hot shoe from the forge. I sought you out to consult. But Conkling is having none of it. What is there to consult about? That trickster James Garfield will be defeated before the entire country. Well, there, there, there is something else to be said. Don't tell me you're thinking of accepting. The office of the vice president is a greater honor than I ever dreamed of attaining. A barren nomination would remain a great honor. In a calmer moment, you will look at this differently. Defiant, Conkling snaps. If you wish for my favor and my respect, you will contemptuously decline it. Senator Conkling, I shall accept the nomination, and I shall carry with me the majority of the delegates. Conkling had plans to make Arthur, his most valued ally, a United States senator. He feels angry and betrayed. His candidate has just lost the nomination. Now he is losing a protege and a friend. But Conkling can tell from the look on Arthur's face that his mind is made up. So without a word, Conkling turns and storms out of the room. Arthur watches his friend walk out as the reporter furiously jots down notes.
The conversation between Conkling and Arthur was recorded for posterity by a man named William Hudson, a reporter for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Though some historians have doubts about the authenticity of the conversation, not enough do to discount it entirely. Whether it's fact or fiction, this much is true. Republican nominee James Garfield needed all the help he could get. Unlike Grant, Blaine, and Sherman, Garfield did not have political machinery already working on his behalf. He would start by playing from behind. But Garfield was confident he could secure the support of both General Grant and James Blaine, as well as the bulk of their supporters. Indeed, both Grant and Blaine would ultimately campaign for Garfield, but Garfield knew that would not be enough. With the South a solid voting bloc for General Hancock, the 1880 contest would come down again to the state of New York. In order to defeat Tammany Hall, the Democratic political machine in New York, Garfield would need the stalwarts in his corner. He had made the politically astute move by offering Chester Arthur the vice presidency. He had hoped that if Arthur joined the ticket, he would bring with him the support of many in the New York delegation. Ultimately, Arthur was chosen as the vice president nominee on the first ballot. But Conkling still held the reins of power in New York, and he was reluctant to get on the Garfield bandwagon. When asked if he would support the Garfield-Arthur ticket, Conkling allegedly replied that he'd rather be thrown in jail. Conkling's holdout was perhaps sour grapes, but it was also strategic. In exchange for his full-throated support, Conkling wanted something in return. As he told a reporter, there are some matters which must be attended to before I can enter the canvas. Conkling wanted the Treasury Department to keep its hands off the New York Custom House, an entity that collected federal taxes on imports. Conkling had long controlled the Custom House and its over $100 million in annual revenue. He also wanted to control federal patronage in New York to decide who would get to fill the thousands of jobs and posts in the state. Conkling demanded that Garfield visit him in person in Manhattan to come to an arrangement. In late July, Garfield wrote, I am very reluctant to go. It is an unreasonable demand that so much effort should be made to conciliate one man. But General Hancock's campaign was already up and running, and he made a formidable opponent. The former Civil War hero who had fought at the Battle of Gettysburg was a household name. He was also largely apolitical, which meant the Democrats could fashion his image any way they saw fit. This fact alone made Hancock dangerous. And so, in early August, Garfield made the long journey to New York. When he arrived, he was disappointed when Conklin gave him the brush and didn't show up for their appointment. But Garfield made the most of his trip, getting in FaceTime with a long list of influential Republicans in the state. It was days later when Garfield met behind closed doors with Chester Arthur and several Conkling supporters in a suite at the Fifth Avenue Hotel. One of Conkling's men laid out the score. Conkling wanted to know who Garfield planned to reward with New York's patronage, the dissenters who turned their backs on Grant or his loyal stalwarts. Allegedly, Garfield tried to ease their concerns. New York belonged to Conkling. He had no intention of upsetting the order of things. Garfield allegedly promised Conkling's men that he wouldn't do anything in New York without their express approval. In turn, allegedly, Conkling's men promised Garfield he would have their full and unflinching support on the campaign trail. Though Garfield would later deny the existence of any quid pro quo with Conkling, certain facts strongly suggest that promises were made and delivered. Conkling maintained control in New York, and in return, he went on the road and stumped for James Garfield. So by the end of August, Garfield had united his party around his candidacy. 
Garfield supporters campaigned on a variety of issues, from checking the southern states in their efforts to suppress civil rights to protecting the black vote, from public education to controlling the flow of Chinese workers into the West Coast. But there was one issue conspicuously absent from the Garfield platform, the labor rights of American workers. In the final weeks of the 1880 contest, Democrats would try to use this issue to their advantage. During the fall of 1880, James Garfield did not openly campaign on the road. Instead, he stayed home in Mentor, Ohio, and made a plethora of speeches to hundreds of visitors. While Garfield focused on what was called his front porch campaign, his supporters launched a relentless effort nationwide. In the press, they attacked Hancock as the candidate of the KKK and the Democrats as the party of the Confederacy. They highlighted Garfield's rise from poverty to the top of American politics and hailed his long record of service to the country, first in the Army and later in Washington. But Hancock and the Democrats mounted a deft opposition. Like Garfield, Hancock remained at his post on New York's Governor's Island and left the dirty work to his friends and supporters. In the press, Democrats cast Garfield as a feeble, corrupt politician, frequently reminding the people of his involvement in the Credit Mobilier scandal, one of the many scandals that plagued President Grant's administration. Garfield had profited from the scheme to the tune of $329, over $10,000 in today's money. Then, two weeks before the election, a pro-Democrat newspaper in New York delivered the Garfield campaign a crushing blow when they published the Maury Letter. The New York Truth claimed the letter was written by James Garfield to a union leader in Massachusetts named H.L. Morey. The text, printed on the front page, read, Yours in relation to the Chinese problem came duly to hand. I take it that the question of employees is only a question of private and corporate economy. Individuals or companies have the right to buy labor where they can get it cheapest. Garfield was known to be vulnerable on labor rights, an issue that didn't even make it into the Republican platform. And with New York in doubt and the South solidly behind Hancock, Garfield needed to win every other state to win the election, including California. Democrats widely distributed the Maury letter in the hope that they could push workers on the West Coast away from Garfield and towards General Hancock. The Democratic national chairman stood by the authenticity of the letter, saying, It is Garfield's handwriting. Denial is worse than useless. The New York Truth stood by the letter as well, for a time. Two months after the election, the New York Truth would finally admit that the Maury letter was a fake. The most obvious clue was that the author misspelled Garfield's last name. Additionally, H.L. Maury was not a real person. A few days after the letter appeared, Garfield responded in print, writing that the letter was the work of some clumsy villain who cannot spell, nor write English, nor imitate my handwriting. Every honest and manly Democrat in America who is familiar with my handwriting will denounce the forgery at sight. Put the case in the hands of able detectives and hunt the rascals down. Garfield's stern and convincing response was published in newspapers all over the country. It was still an open question, though, whether California readers would believe it. On National Election Day, Tuesday, November 2nd, over 9 million Americans cast their ballot, 78.4% of all eligible voters. It was one of the largest voter turnouts in the history of the country. In the end, the Democrats' October surprise was enough to cost Garfield California, but not enough to overcome Garfield's national popularity. The 1880 election resulted in the closest popular vote margin in American history. Garfield won a popular majority by less than 10,000 votes. He won 214 electoral votes, 
Hancock won 155. If New York's 35 electoral votes had gone to Hancock, the Democrats would have won the election. In that state, over a million votes were counted. Garfield won by a mere 20,000 New Yorkers. It's not an exaggeration to say that had Roscoe Conkling not backed Garfield, he likely would have lost the election. It was party unity that put Garfield into the White House. But almost immediately after taking the oath, Garfield was again confronted by a splintering of the Republicans. When he stacked his cabinet largely with half-breed Republicans, Conkling and the stalwarts were furious. When he made attempts to pacify the stalwarts with favorable appointments, the half-breeds were incensed. The party was divided, and Garfield was between a rock and a hard place. In the midst of the maelstrom, there was one man in Washington who had a plan to bring the party back together. This longtime stalwart Republican reckoned the best way to unity was to remove James Garfield from office. But this man was no ordinary Republican from New York. He was a deranged madman with a chip on his shoulder. In the fall of 1881, Charles Gateau would seek Garfield's removal, not by political means, but through a violent assassination. This is episode 24 of American Elections Wiki Game, 1880, Maelstrom. On the next episode, the election of 1884, in the wake of James Garfield's assassination, Vice President Chester Arthur faces a broken nation and a Republican party divided over the question of reform, an issue that sets the table for two men looking to bring change to Washington, Maine Republican James Blaine and New York Democrat Grover Cleveland. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck. 